Okay. Ready? Yeah. <laughs> Worst and beginning ever. And go. Go. <clears throat> so. Go. Uh, and, sorry, go on. Carry on. In this episode, chaos reigns. No structure. We're just going to talk <laughs> for an hour and a half. The tagline for this episode. Welcome to episode 42 of the world famous Tetrapodology podcast. The tagline is... With too much structure comes too much responsibility. <laughs> um, <clears throat> okay, so Sorry. let's let's start then. Yeah. You looked like you had something to say, but you didn't really, did you? <laughs> oh, yeah, something's gone wrong. I can't get it out. <clears throat> okay. Okay. I. <laughs> <laughs> mm. <clears throat> Who are you? Me. Yeah. Superman. I'm Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> that didn't work at all right. Sorry, there was a request from my daughter. <laughs> okay, that went well. <laughs> there's a long, there's a long backstory to it to do with uh, Disney's portrayal of characters from children's literature. I see. It's, and I, I pronounce it wrong. It should be more like. Sorry, I said it wrong. It should be more like this. I'm Winnie the Pooh. That's it. <clears throat> right. Anyway, so. No structure, but um, <laughs> I don't know. Do we want to start with yeah, follow start. up? Okay, <laughs> tell us about tell tell me about Romania. Ah, Romania. Um, oh my god, it was so long ago. Just yeah. come back from Romania, mm. where where I was part of a team from the University of Southampton, and uh, I spent a lot of time looking at birds and sheep, including the noble Turkana sheep, which I've written about tetrapod zoology. We found a load of stuff. Um. At Raparosi, which is this famous, amazing red cliffs, kind of Badlands style, awesome thing, place. We, um, we, and by that I mean mostly Liz Martin, I think, found significant new Asdarkid pterosaur material, which, because uh, mm-hmm. Raparosi is the place where the giant Romanian Hazagopteryx type pterosaurs come from. This hasn't been published yet, so. Well, some of the stuff has been published, but whatever, uh, you know. Uh, there's a whole big story there. <clears throat> um, new material of big and small Astarchids. Some members of our team abseiled down the sides of Raparosi. Oh, do you know what they call abseiling in uh, some other countries? No, what do they call it? Repelling. Oh, yes. It's another name for it, repelling. Abseiling doesn't make much sense to me. It's crazy, and it's not spelt abseil, it's, it's A-B-E-S-E. Uh, A-B-S-E-I-L, abseil, strange word. Maybe it's French, but mm. repelling. I don't know, it's a bit of a strange word as well. Anyway, a bunch, bunch of our people repelled or abseiled down the, the sides of Raparosi, and they found something incredible in situ in the cliff. And I'm not going to tell the whole story, don't want to embarrass anyone, but it was like, oh my God, this is a real game changer. This is... <laughs> front cover of nature new species you know everything we knew is wrong revision of everything uh and it turned out to be a mistake and uh, I'll, I'll have to tell you off the record the whole story <laughs> there was pretty funny <laughs> sorry everyone else um let me just write that down <clears throat> so i don't forget it <clears throat> right mistake while abseiling yes um, pe- yeah and uh we found a new hadrosaur uh, which is interesting because um it's, uh, it's got some weirdness going on about it. Uh, found loads of turtles. You always find quite a lot of Colocobotian-style turtles. And uh, yeah, yeah, and, and mm, 
So it's good. Yeah. Very yeah. fruitful. And part of my thinkings on the trip have been written up. Um, we were sponsored by uh, a, um, uh, a an oil exploration company called Prospecta Uni. And uh, I have an article on the Prospecta Uni site, which some people might know about. I don't know. <laughs> Let's put it in the notes if okay. people care. Yeah. So, so Romania, that was good. And I'm just about to leave literally tomorrow for the Lyme Regis Fossil Festival, which is an annual thing. And we've spoken about that before. That's always good fun. I'm at the University of Southampton stall with other people. And I'll be looking at fossils and buying toys and stuff. Hoping the weather's going to be all right because it's pretty crappy today. So it's been yeah. raining a lot here. It's nice. Yeah, it's raining here too. Okay. This is good podcasting. <laughs> Look at that. The weather channel. What's, what's the weather like in London? <laughs> Here in Southampton, it's quite overcast. Um, uh, I was in London the other day. Yeah. And uh, apart from going to Tokyo Toys, I also went to the cinema. Will and I went to see Avengers: Age of Ultron. Oh, Age so of Ultron. Yeah. Not Age of Voltron. <laughs> you, you and your obsession with Voltron. Let it go, John. Let it go. We Where is the Voltron movie? That's what I want to know. <laughs> uh, and what's the key take-home thing about Voltron? It's giant robots plugging their arms <laughs> into cats' asses. <laughs> yeah. Which, strangely enough, I didn't notice as a kid. How did I not notice this? <clears throat> Anyway, Age of Ultron, I really liked it. Mostly liked it for Ultron. He's he's such a such a cool character. And he's nothing like Voltron. <laughs> well, he's kind of like a metallic humanoid guy thing. Is he and, made uh, of cats? <laughs> <there's> no, <laughs> nothing no like cat. that. He's made of bears. There's no cats involved. Uh-huh. And I wonder. I wonder whether. Uh, I mean, I, I did want to talk a little bit about movies and stuff at some point in this episode okay okay so ultron made of bears was it no he's not made of bears at all oh so, okay this well sp- spoilers yes yeah, spoilers because the film hasn't even been released in a lot of parts of the world yet i think uh-huh. uh the, the in the u.s it doesn't come out until um friday i think which is what's that april the 30 something 31st are there 31 days in april i don't know but um, no poor americans <laughs> they'll never see it the story is that um there's there's uh tony stark and bruce banner have been working on an artificial intelligence they call it an artificial intelligence but it's actually the way they describe it it actually seems more like a real intelligence which is rather than a simulated intelligence which is what ai is meant to be it's a thing that actually does, like you know, learn and. Uh, quite and interesting sentences there because. What's the difference? Artificial just means we made it. Doesn't mean that it's because. What's the difference between a simulated intelligence and a real intelligence? There is no difference. Well, it's a philosophical argument, but I'd say there's no difference. That's not the definition. The definition is whether you artificial is just whether it's made by us. So why do? brain people people that work on psychology uh, the work into the brain yeah <laughs> why do they talk about a difference between artificial intelligence and a real and real intelligence because they're talking real... about making intelligence rather than just having it poking around with an evolved intelligence 
if you can make a synthesized intelligence that reproduced the um if it seemed to behave like say a person did mm. in terms of you know responding yeah with it with it with with an intelligence hmm how is that different from an intelligence that actually works like a real one like a real intelligence we don't work like computers as in we don't store everything forever stuff degrades and it's modified over time yeah. i think that's the point but, but to simulate that you mean, you'd have still... to get that as well you'd have to have yeah. the degrading you'd have to have the fuzzy stuff that goes with that yeah yeah and okay. computers well, do degrade it's just i think it's a um the result of complexity. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So they make an artificial intelligence. Yeah. Uh, which called Voltron. Is kind of Ultron. Okay. Which is which is kind of like which which is which is uh, it's it lives in the cloud, and once it's free, it can go anywhere, and it does, and it infects the internet, and it takes over factories. That, can, that are creating things made of metal and it makes itself an army because it gets it by major spoilers here. So if you don't want to hear about Age of Ultron, stop listening. And um, it creates an army of like hundreds and hundreds of robot humanoids. And, and it comes up with the idea, it's meant to be like a guardian of peace, but it comes up with the idea that in order to like protect the world it has to cause the extinction of humanity wipe the slate clean and uh, basically start again with it's never explained completely but it seems to be ultron's main idea is to cause an extinction level event and to repopulate the world with like robotic organisms that's kind of seems to be his general plan right. so even if so ultron is manifested as like a sort of three meter tall like metallic guy who's just brilliant the way he speaks and his mannerisms and everything is just awesome he's not at all robotic he's very human um but even if he's destroyed it doesn't matter because his intelligence like i say is in a cloud and just another one another one will be built that's got this that's you know still exactly the same there's even moments where he kills himself and just sort of walks into shot and says then here i am again that, that kind of stuff and um yeah he's just great and uh-huh he refers to geological extinction events a couple of times. He says that there's one point, he's the one point where he says there's 12 extinction level events before the one that killed the dinosaurs. Of course, if he knew everything, he'd say the dinosaurs weren't extinct because he'd talk about birds. But the, uh, the end maybe, maybe he doesn't believe in that sort of classification. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he's got a superior biological classification system. A superior, uh, yeah. But so, so it was, it was good and. Uh, yeah, I'm sure there's some other stuff I wanted to say about it, none of which is at all relevant to the podcast, but uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I liked it very much because of Ultron. And there's no end, there's no scene at the very end of the credits. Will and I sat around right at the very end of the credits, nothing. There's just a bit like halfway through the credits featuring, uh, what's his name, Thanos, I think. Halfway through it. Yeah, sorry to spoil that for everyone as well. Yeah, because people were saying there was going to be Spider-Man at the end of it, because you know what the next Avengers movie is going to be called? No, do you know what the ne- I'll start that again. Do you know what the next Spider-Man movie is going to be called? Um. <laughs> okay, it's going to be called Spider-Man, the next Avenger. I know how much you love superheroes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah. You see this face. <laughs> My parent face. <laughs> um. <clears throat> Spider-Man. Right. I also wanted, I wanted to talk about Batman v Superman, but let's do that later. Oh, really? Oh, great, yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just going to be... <laughs> and now, in the world of superhero movies... <laughs> so, follow-up from last time, I just I have just remembered 
that when we were um, uh, talking about the distribution of scaly skin in early amniotes, yep. um, I said that we don't know of any uh, we don't have any skin impressions from early members of the reptile lineage, and that um, somebody told me, and I've completely forgotten who. Sorry, but someone told me that's incorrect. There's there's a bunch of uh, reptile branch animals from the Carboniferous, most famously Hylonomus from um, Nova Scotia. I think is a, yeah from Joggins in Nova Scotia is the best known one of these things. They're called Proterothyridids. They're generally recognised to be a grade rather than a clade, but there's a bunch of these sort of lizard-shaped early reptiles. And there's one of those called Cephalerpeton. And uh, Cephalerpeton uh, apparently has um, impressions or maybe even preservation, I can't remember, <clears throat> uh, demonstrating that it had scaly skin. So we do know that early reptiles had scaly skin, or scaly bellies anyway, in mm-hmm. the same way that we know early synapsids, members of the mammal lineage, also had scaly belly skin. So that was something... Okay, I forget what that means in the context of discussion, but there you go. Not really much, because I think, well, yeah, because we already said that there was was going to be, um, yeah, scaly skin of some sort in uh, early amniotes. That was, yeah. We refer listeners to the previous episode. (laughs) We should say it's been a long time since the last one. Yes, we should talk about that. Well, you went to Romania. Yep. When you got back, I was sick. I mean, not so sick that I couldn't get up or anything, but I had a cough, which is really bad for podcasting. And um, then, then my internet broke yesterday, and so there we go. Yep, good story. Yeah, cool story, bro. But that's been about six weeks, I think, since we did our last. Oh, well, we are maybe very a late. month. Yeah, it's bad. Well, it's hard to get you out of bed most okay. days. Not the yeah. Um, this reminds me. Yes, the this the showing pictures to me section of the podcast. Yep, that animal is Carnifex. Carnifex, a large Triassic crocodilomorph, which we spoke about, I think, in episode forty-one, mm-hmm. and the and it had just been published, and and it's it's large. You remember a skull of about fifty centimeters long, animal probably like over three meters long. The story there is that this animal from the Carnian late Triassic. Excuse me. Um, it. So I muted myself then to clear my throat, and then I realised yeah. I didn't have to. <laughs> um, you probably shouldn't do that when you're talking. Sorry, <laughs> but I need to do it in the middle. Of, I'm not going to have a drink now. The, the drinking game is in effect. Okay, I should have mentioned that. The two-minute rule is also in effect. Anyway, Carnifex, Carnifex. <clears throat> I was saying, how come? How come um, it's been portrayed as as bipedal? in uh, artistic reconstructions and such. And I said, there's no evidence for this in the paper. Wrong! Wrong! <laughs> Wrong! They specifically say in the paper, Lindsay Zano and colleagues, they specifically say that the short humerus indicates or suggests uh, obligate, bip- I think, obligate bipedality in this animal. So they're saying this is a bipedal crocodilomorph, which is a big deal. Because although there have been claims from decades back that a few early crocodilomorphs might have been bipedal, when checked, those claims have turned out to be, you know, there's no basis. They're not supported on the basis of limb proportions or whatever. But apparently, Carnifex, there is, yeah, there are suspicions of uh, of bipedality. So that's pretty interesting. And uh, we won't know until the full monograph is published, which is due out sometime in the near future. 
Did we want to talk about okay. other dinosaur type stuff, other Mesozoic archosaur stuff? Because yeah. there's, a, there's a bunch of neat things. Yeah. Uh, we talk about Brontosaurus for a bit. Go on then. Uh, well, do you? Because you, you've done you've done a pretty picture. Yeah, did a picture. Brontosaurus is back. But oh, I think we should talk. Right? I think we should talk about the paper more than the the Brontosaurus <laughs> conclusion. <laughs> By the way, are you okay if I use your picture on Touchboard Zoology? <laughs> a bit late for that. Yeah, good. Because <laughs> I did. <laughs> so yeah, unfortunately, the uh, the body of the animal just looks like a big black blob. You couldn't really see the the forelimbs. Yeah, you darkened it when you took the picture and then merged it with another picture. Well, I didn't darken it, but because I because I scrunched it down to twenty kilobytes in size or whatever, of course, it took out any mm. resolution. So, um, yeah, takes out the uh, different yeah. colors. Yeah, that's the thing I have to do. I'm afraid. So, um, yeah, Scientific okay. American and their great blogging platform. <clears throat> wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so I've written about this already quite a long article on Tetrapod Zoology. There's a paper in PeerJ, which is a brilliant open access journal that quite a few of us have used now. Of um, Yeah, there's this, this paper by Emmanuel Shop Octavia Mateus, who we've mentioned before in connection with his work on uh, Torvosaurus, the theropod from Portugal, and Roger Benson is involved as well. And they do they've published a gargantuan phylogenetic analysis of diplodocid sauropod dinosaurs involving, I think it's over 470 characters, taken coding from something like, I think it's about 50 um, individual specimens. So when you do a phylogenetic analysis, you have to decide which, um, what we call operational taxonomic units, OTUs, you have to decide which units you're going to be actually studying. And normally those units are like species. Mm. But uh, for extra super-duper resolution, you can use specimens, or you can when you're working with animals that aren't known for many specimens anyway. It's a bit harder when you're working on living animals. But, um, uh, yeah, this is specimen-based analysis. You do expect members of different specimens of a species to group together <clears throat> as clades, and that mostly happens. But in this analysis, they also find various uh, specimens to not group with the species they've conventionally been associated with, indicating that they might actually be, you know, something new. So they find a few new things there. They generally support the structure that people have recovered before for diplodocids and other studies. Talk about that for a minute. <coughs> oh. <laughs> before I clear my throat. <laughs> Sorry. You're really good at this. You're really good at this today. Right. Okay. Mute. Oh. Right. <clears throat> That's a lot of throat clearing. Okay. Yeah, so I think what's interesting about this paper is um is the th- the things it brings up about taxonomy in many ways. And it's got some interesting What are they? Suggestions, conclusions? About proposals, defining proposals, defining about defining um, what we mean by genus and this sort of thing. Um, but going back to the specimen level phylogeny for a second, mm. obviously, when you decide on a species, in some ways you're just a priori assuming that everyone got that right when they assigned these things, these specimens to species. And with mm. fossil animals, often that's going to be incorrect. Yes, indeed. 
Um, so the resolution, if you go with species level, is probably relatively bad because you're going to be including stuff which may not even be in what we generally call the same genus sometimes, right? Um, it's probably fairly good for higher level. It's mm. it's okay for higher level, but once you get down to that sort of level, the species level, if there is such a thing, <coughs> um, it it is going to be considerably less reliable. Whereas a specimen-based one, although it, isn't, it will be much more reliable in that respect, but obviously it's a huge amount of work. Um, although specimens in themselves are often somewhat trickier than you'd think, aren't they? Especially things found in bone beds, right? Especially I things don't... that are mount, yeah, mounted in museums as well because of... Yeah plaster reconstruction and such yeah but you could be mixing different animals and yes and also yeah again uh, so jumbling things that come from the same place is a mm. constant uh what's the f- problem but um so is the fact that when you look at a specimen on display generally people know that they know which specimens are composites. But there are some where people don't know this, and there's some where this hasn't ever been clearly established because we don't know enough about the history of the specimens concerned. So, like, for example, what we mean by this, or what I mean by this, is that, you know, you're looking at, say, a diplodocus in a museum, but what you don't know is that the front legs come from one animal and the rest of the animal comes from, you know, a different specimen. Yeah. Um, which may not even, Which may not be a member of the same species indeed might not even be the same genus and that's what we should talk about because i think this is the interesting thing in the paper is the quantification of genus and species now i confess i haven't read the paper because it's 300 pages long do you feel like you've got a good handle on how they did this yeah 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 i do so tell us so they found um, named entities to group into clusters, clades on a cladogram. For example, they found, okay, the thing that everyone knows is they found Brontosaurus. The name Brontosaurus is attached to a species called Excelsus, which was originally described as Brontosaurus Excelsus. And then later on, it was decided that it's similar enough to the, the animals called Apatosaurus to belong to this group called Apatosaurus. So Excelsus then became Apatosaurus Excelsus. They're saying that Excelsus doesn't fall within the Apatosaurus clade, that it belongs outside of it. Well, if there are no other animals in between Excelsus and the things called Apatosaurus, how do you decide whether you're going to include Excelsus in a Patosaurus or not. And they say that what they did is because they're, you know, what decision do we, is the best one to make here? They say that they, they looked at the numbers of character differences mm-hmm. between the thing called Excelsus and the things called a Patosaurus. And they found that elsewhere on their tree, there's an approximate number of anatomical differences. I think it's about six that warrant whether something deserves to be classed as a separate, air quotes, genus here. So Excelsus is, let's say, six characters different. It's different in six anatomical ways from the things called Apatosaurus. So therefore, Excelsus uh, is outside of Apatosaurus. Let's stick with this, go back to the name Brontosaurus. But 
Brontosaurus excelsus isn't the only member of that lineage. There's also a thing on there called Amphicelius altus. There's another one called Elosaurus. Is it Elosaurus parvus? And then there's another one called Apatosaurus. No, sorry, scrap that. Eobrontosaurus wannapi. So if those are members of the Brontosaurus lineage, what do we do with them? Well, they use the same technique of counting the numbers of character differences. And of those animals, Amphicelius altus is different enough in terms of the numbers of character differences from Excelsus to not be in Brontosaurus. But Elosaurus and Eobrontosaurus are both similar enough in terms of the character differences to Excelsus to be included in Brontosaurus as well. So this is dead simple stuff. All they're doing is saying they're counting the numbers of character differences. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing fancy about this. There's nothing complicated about it. But the point is that they quantified it they put a specific number on how many anatomical differences they expected to see between air quotes genera yeah right so that's what they that's what they did they also did i don't have the paper in front of me so i can't remember the terminology now but they also used a a morphometric technique of working out the amount of like anatomical difference overall of specimens generated on scatter plots and they find different uh, again, air quote, genera to fall in different places on these scatter plots. This was the thing that Roger Benson did. It's a, a pairwise fitting statistical technique. I, I can't remember the specific name of it. And the results for that, in terms of like how distinct taxa were on these graphs, you know, where they fell on the plots, that also matched pretty much these ideas about where the divisions between air quotes, genera should be. So they used two different techniques to work out whether you should apply, how you should distinguish these dipodocid sauropod dinosaur genera. They did say that the technique they use only applies to their own study. They didn't say, don't go assuming this can work for like other groups of sauropods and other groups of dinosaurs and other groups of animals. But um, as I said on Tetrapod Zoology, it would be interesting to see how this does match because you get a kind of... You do get a kind of general feeling that we all have some idea... When you're familiar with a group of organisms, you have some idea of how much difference and how much similarity you're prepared to accept as regards which animals you lump together in the same air quotes genus as opposed to others which you give their own yeah, air quotes. It's got their own <clears throat> genericometer. Gen- genericometer, that, exactly. So, And there is a suspicion that within some groups of animals, people are prepared to accept an enormous amount of variation but still keep them in the same air quotes genus. And... <laughs> And yet there are other groups where, you know, one or two differences. Oh, this one's got a slightly longer nose horn, so it gets yeah. a different different genus, which, of course, is the great joke about like, horned dinosaurs. But I don't think that's true. I think these animals are actually quite different. Um, I, I think there aren't that many. Um, again, it depends on how your generic commentary is calibrated. Yes, and, and obviously there are problems here with how much we care about morphological variation. So, for example, dogs have a tremendous amount of morphological variation. Um, does that mean that we've created dozens of new genera? I, I don't think so. I don't think anyone would argue that. Um, no. So <clears throat> we don't... This always gets... <clears throat> sorry, go on. Yeah. We don't really know what we're trying to get at here because just the genetics... Yeah, okay. Some people might say the genetics is the real thing, but in some ways it's not. You know, we we are interested in morphological variation. We're just trying to balance two different things. 
So the, the subject of domestic dogs and other domestic animals always gets brought up whenever people talk about differences between how much distance we expect, how much similarity and difference we expect within a species or, or even a air quotes genus. So my response to that is these cases really aren't the same. Dogs, dogs are not a naturally evolving thing. Obviously, they're, you know, they're, they're, their evolution has been guided by, by selective breeding by us. So, but we, we know that. We know that's the case. So therefore, for different groups of organisms, we should make the argument that we have to decide. Communities of researchers would have to decide what the best course of action is as to how you do sort the naming out. So what the variation you see in dogs just isn't the same as variation evolved over millions of years in horned dinosaurs or sauropod dinosaurs or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, and I think that's 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 fair. You know, do what's useful for the group that you work on. And with fossil animals, all we've got is morphology. So, um, defining these things based on morphology is the is the way to do it. I think it's the only way we can do it. So, well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, species definitions and and uh, genus definitions just have to be morphological if we're going to go with any such thing as genus. But this brings us up, brings up the, the bigger point is that if we accept species and genera as being things, or even just species, mm -hmm. we are accepting paraphyletic taxonomy. Yeah. And I'm wondering if we... Explain what that means. Yeah. Explain what that means for some of our listeners. Yeah. So we are accepting that something can... We can name something that doesn't include all its descendants. So, for example, the big argument about birds being dinosaurs is that birds are descended from dinosaurs, therefore they are dinosaurs. And that's monophyletic taxonomy. You have to include all the descendants of in a group. You can't exclude some descendants. Um, and so there's been a big push recent, over the last 20, 30 years to make all taxonomy monophyletic, really, right? So mm -hmm. all groups have to be monophyletic. All named groups have to be monophyletic. They have to be clades. That's what a clade is. Yep. Um, but this whole time, we've also had been talking about species. Um, genera have certainly fallen out of favour, but species have exactly the same problems in that we're taking a little segment and saying, okay, this, this thing exists for a certain period of time is descendants might turn into a different species at some point. Because otherwise, Where the species is one species. From. Yes. The original species. Um, <laughs> We've so, covered this a couple of times, haven't we? This, yeah. this, is the, this is the thing that never goes away. It's been covered on Tetrabodzology quite a few times. No, but um, here's, the, here's the interesting thing about this that this paper brings up. We can just, we could just give that, give that idea up. We could give up, give up monophyletic taxonomy if we could accept some sort of distance measurement and this paper does a distance measurement right mm. so we could actually say you know what paraphyletic groups are fine as long as you define them you know this animal and all things within this sort of range it would have to be more um uh, more universal and more yeah, more sophisticated than what they did in this paper. You know, just a sheer number of um, characters mm. wouldn't do it because different matrices have different numbers of characters in them, right? So, say if you had uh, a cladistic analysis with 150 characters in it, 
obviously the number of differences between something and something else would be smaller than if you had 300 characters, even though the actual difference is not is not bigger. It's that you've, you've double sampled it. So in 150 character analysis, the difference between, let's say, Diplodocus and Brontosaurus might be three, whereas in a 350 character analysis, it might be something more like eight, just because you've counted more of them. You see what I'm saying? So you yeah. would need to you'd need to account for that somehow. But given that we have to accept paraphyletic tax, taxonomy on one level, why are we arguing that we can't accept it on, at the higher levels? What's that? What's the, what's the argument there? Is there? I hope this is a rhetorical question. <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, well, I don't know. The, I don't know the answer, but I kind of. I think. I think that. We have to accept that the things that we call species are not the same across the board, and that while there are many species, including at this depends where you are in time, of course, but there are an enormous number of species that are clades because mm-hmm. we are including all descendants of a, a certain ancestor. But as you've already said, species evolve into other things that we call species, which means by definition species have to be paraphyletic, which means that the entities we call species are kind of like uh, multidimensional blobs that have like a... They, they span a range of different anatomical, molecular uh, character states and also go through time. Yeah. <laughs> So if you are seeing the members of a lineage evolving in time and one species evolves into another one and it doesn't matter whether that's through uh, a gradualistic, slow accruing of changes or whether it's like a relatively rapid thing that happens over a few tens of or hundreds of generations, it doesn't matter. The point is that at some point you're going to have this boundary, this fuzzy boundary where one species becomes another one and we would have to make a, an arbitrary decision as to where we're going to put the cutoff point. That has, to, that has to exist. So species, the things we call species, are not tidy little twigs on yeah. a, on a Imagine that a phylogenetic tree, well, a species should be like a kind of like cloud-shaped blob that encompasses part of the tree and part of maybe the base of another adjacent branch, that kind of thing. Um, but, but yeah, how that applies to higher taxa. species are the, the inevitable conclusion is there isn't higher and lower. What are we even talking about there? That... If we accept paraphyletic taxonomy, we just have to accept paraphyletic taxonomy, and we should give up on this um, <laughs> this whole well, um, I think, monophyletic yeah. crusade. Well, but yeah, I mean, although although yes, to to a degree, it is it is a crusade. I mean, it's kind of like I do think that people have sort of agreed that it's a uh, it's reductionist that talking about things in terms of like monophyla. And slapping names on branches and saying that the name goes all the way down to the, the origin of the branch, that's a a reductionist kind of like, you know, easy working thing. It doesn't apply right when you go down to the level of individuals or subpopulations of populations of species. So, But also we of- found, as, as we've found many times on this podcast, it can be very awkward talking about certain things because some subgroup later on did something weird right yeah yeah so yeah. you could talk about a lot about 
things that go for terrestrial dinosaurs, right? Uh, anatomical adaptations, this sort of stuff, which don't really apply to either flying birds or swimming birds, right? Mm. Or something mm. like that. Mm-hmm. And that <clears throat> paraphyletic groups can be useful to talk about, and you could even define them. Um, and so I've... I guess this paper's really got me thinking much more about, um, yeah, the crusade to make everything, to get us to talk in clades, when often it's very awkward to talk in clades. And we've all kind of accepted that we accept paraphyletic taxonomy at one level, so why not try and make a system that works, that... of paraphyletic taxonomy at a higher level so that we can actually talk about these things without saying non-such-and-suching such-and-suches, which is just so <laughs> awkward. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, language exists to serve us, not the other way around. So there is quite a strong argument to be made that, I mean, I think about this all the time when I'm writing the giant textbook because there's so many groups that I want to refer to that technically aren't groups. But you can't... Fish! <laughs> well, let's say imagine imagine a cluster of like taxa that I merged from the base of a lineage. Shouldn't talk about the base of a lineage, but you know what I mean. Like the early in the early in the history of the lineage, you can't have a different paragraph on every single genus level animal. You you cluster all those together, like the proterothyroids I mentioned earlier on. Yeah. So we yeah we do agree that there there kind of has to be some tolerable level of paraphyly that we're prepared to accept but um yeah but i think i find this you know a fairly widespread view people are prepared to accept for the purposes of communication people still you know even today there are people talking about rampharynchoid pterosaurs and prosauropods sauropodomorphs uh and when they talk about theropods they don't always say non-avial or non-avian theropods so um um and, and there's even whole books written where people say, for the purposes of this book, we're going to use the term dinosaur to mean the Mesozoic ones. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, no, that's just not, that's technically wrong. That's like saying, this book is on mammals, but not the bats. So when we say mammals, forget about bats. All mammals are like this. <laughs> so, uh, um, yeah. Yeah, but that's the yeah. point, isn't it? That's the point I'm making, that often it's really useful to be able to talk. Ramphorinchoid pterosaurs is a really interesting one here. Because there are a suite of characteristics that go with that paraphyletic group. There's, you know, there's a neuronated which are a weird sort of um, anatomical exception. And thus your argument begins to crumble immediately. <laughs> well, sort of. But what we want to be able to talk about is, um, I suppose you could say long-tailed pterosaurs, maybe. Mm-hmm. But there's a whole bunch of things that go, like, like long tails, short necks. Um. I'm struggling to think of other things, but there are there are quite long a, fifth toe. Yeah, there's yeah long fifth toe. There's a bunch separate of separate yeah. nostril. And, yeah, yeah. There's a whole bunch of things which go with that that, and they're at least as distinct as pterodactyloidea is. Right? It's not like mm. if you didn't know the evolutionary trajectory. Tra- uh, what's the word? Um, if you didn't know the fate of the lineage, you couldn't see... You could say that, ramphor- you know, pterodactyloids came first and that um, and they're paraphyletic and rampharynchoids are a monophyletic group that have this suite of characteristics. <laughs> and it would make just as much sense. If you didn't really know, right? you didn't know when had done the 
closer work, then yeah, okay, fine. They've got these special characteristics. Just because some are apomorphic in Pterodactyloidia doesn't make them more interesting to talk about. Doesn't make them more useful to talk about in other contexts. If you're talking about phylogeny, that's fine. But if you're talking about um, a group and their evolutionary history taking into account how they use their morphology and their ecology and that sort of stuff, then paraphyletic groups are at least as interest often at least as interesting as monophyletic groups. So the basic gist of this discussion is yes, which is more useful having a terminology that that serves us and is handy and uh, uh, concise or having something that is kind of quite broken awkward but better reflects the shape of phylogeny because the shape of the tree because the general thinking among people that work on on phylogenetics is that our taxonomy the names we use has to reflect like almost without exception has to yeah has to adhere to the shape of the tree that we discover which by the way of course is constantly changing this is the thing that very few people seem to get about taxonomy the fact that it's never going to we have this, the, you know, there's the Taper article on, because it was World Tapir Day on the 27th of April. And there's a Tetrapodology article on tapirs. Um, this is the thing coming up in the comments there, the fact that, you know, some people want some of the tapirs to have their own generic names because that's what the, the shape of the phylogeny indicates. It also kind of makes sense, given that some of these taxa are meant to be, some of these lineages are meant to have been separate for like more than 20 million years, which is way more than you expect for animals included in the same in quotes, genus. But um, other people say, no, that's just silly because we've already, you know, everyone's already sticking. Think how many books would now be out of date and the fact that, well, do we need it when everyone knows what a tape, what the, the Taparus genus encompasses? It's, it's just never going to go away, is it? I mean, well, that's, it's not as if... The, yeah, I guess that's the, the argument in this paper is that, okay, if we're going to do this, if we're going to have paraphyletic groups... Let's um, let's try and define them, and I think that's that is one way forward, which we should be consi- seriously considering, and not just dismissing it because monophyly, blah 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 blah, because we're already, as I said, we're already accepting paraphyly on, paraphyly well, on some levels. I, well, maybe I don't know. Um, we shouldn't give people the impression that this study by Shop et al has any bearing on paraphyly it doesn't they don't they don't they're not naming paraphyletic entities if you th- have you got that impression no oh phew okay <laughs> i was going to say <laughs> if that's what you're saying they're saying but, that's not but if you if you say. say yeah but and this is really important because you get into discussions like with people with scientists all the time about this yeah if you're going to name genus and species you are by definition, accepting paraphyly. doesn't matter whether you actually name them or not. By definition, you are accepting this. Okay, this, and therefore, and this is why. I don't care whether you particularly named a paraphyletic group. Yeah. You are, by definition, accepting this. I had a chat about this with Mark Norell just the other day, and he's one of these people that says that he wishes that we didn't name species at all and that we should just use specimen numbers for that for that reason. Mm. And uh, well, that's that's another that's a one way to do it, but God, that's really um, that just wouldn't. That's just, we just we can't work like that. 
And and the response to that is, well, you're lucky you work on dinosaurs, where for each, or, or fossil vertebrates in general, where for so many tanks you've got, wow, I've got a whole six specimens of this yeah. animal. <laughs> this is a really well-known animal. Yeah, a whole six. This, yeah. It's the best, Tyrannosaurus rex is the best-known dinosaur. There are at least 40 specimens or something and that's that's like good for a dinosaur for a mesozoic dinosaur but in terms of the rest of animals paleontologists need to remember also that they're that they're a tiny minority compared to the number of people that work on on animals and evolution and many do admit this and many do defer to the fact that we should follow decisions made by people that work on living animals but um yeah but there's there's problems with that of course is that we just can't you can't follow the methodology that's used on living animals for fossil animals. Not not methodology, but you should follow, like, if there's a community of researchers and they say that this group of animals have this set of characteristics and then paleontologists say, oh, yeah, but we've got fossil ones that got this and this and this, the best thing to do is to... Which community is, like... I don't want to be mean here, but, you know, which is more important in the grand scheme of things? The thousands and thousands of people that work on, say, living turtles or the dedicated tiny community that work on fossil turtles and they, they know of fossil turtles with teeth and weirdy stuff like that. The, the people that work on living turtles say, we want to call these animals turtles and we don't care about anything else. We don't care. <laughs> so the definition of a turtle is it doesn't have teeth and the fossil people say, but we've got fossil turtles with teeth. Well, then the best solution is, well, those aren't turtles then. <laughs> They're like, they're extinct weird-ass things related to turtles, which, of course, is the way it's gone, because now people routinely talk of crowns and stems. So they're stem turtles, but they're not turtles proper. That's that's kind of what I'm getting at. Which is another awkward thing that we've done with language. So stem turtles. It's quite handy, though. Sounds weird, but it sounds like it, it sounds, it is a type of turtle. That's the way English works. Yes. Oh, we had this discussion because yeah. of stem birds, didn't we? I remember now. Yes. Yeah. Stem bird. Yeah. A tall man is a man. Okay. So anyway, so giant study of Diplodocus a manual shop and colleagues published in PAJ discussed at length at Tetrapodzoology, probably one of the best articles about it online, because of course it got a gargantuan amount of coverage. Yeah. Um it I knew about it before publication uh, and uh, and it was I knew it was going to be published while I was in Romania, so I thought, well I'm not gonna do anything on it. And it also was somewhat close to April 1st. And, of course, I had an April 1st article p- planned. But um, Yes, it came out on but, April the 2nd. Oh, did it? Yeah, I think so. my so, plan yeah. – so so that paper came out. And then there was the paper on alleged sexual dimorphism in Stegosaurus. And there was also – there's two papers on theropods, non-bird theropods, which have just been published. One is on the um, the foot scales, the podotheca of – uh, Concavenator, this uh, yeah, Spanish Cargodontosaur. Yeah. yeah. And another one is on climbing behavior and possible flight behavior in juvenile Deinonychus. So I these things all caught my interest. So I thought, wow, I'm going to do an article. I'm going to do an article that talks about diplodocid phylogeny, talks about these foot anatomy and climbing behavior and flight behavior in dromaeosaurids and also talks about sexual dimorphism in stegosaurs. And of course, by the time I'd written the diplodocid bit, it was like. <laughs> <laughs> the other stuff can wait to another time. Maybe I'll mention it on the podcast. Maybe I won't. So, um, but okay. the stegosaur, the stegosaur. Yeah. I want. Let's not start talking about those now because yeah, yeah. we'll be here all day. But the stegosaur thing has got quite a lot of um, debate. That it, it's claimed that in one quarry there's specimens of a species of stegosaurus. Stegosaurus. You're, talking, you're talking about it. 
You said, let's yeah. not talk about it now, and then well, you started you, talking about it. Yeah, that's because we're two-minute rule, John. No, two minute so, rule. we're moving on. Okay. We're moving on. We're so moving we'll talk on. about it next next. Ep- I think it's interesting. Let's talk about it next episode. But we've got to do All some right. nice questions. Oh, uh, yes, of course. Okay, so this is from Robin Hewson. And Robin asks... With all the focus on quad launching, has there been any work done on how large pterosaurs came to land? Is the assumption they landed on all fours, and would there have been any conflict between the need to use the wings to slow descent and as a landing gear simultaneously, or might pterosaurs have landed more like birds? So, do you want to... What I here's what, here's what we're going to do. I'll talk first, mm. and then... Right, watch this. Here we go. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of work being done on launching... But I'm not aware of any work that's been done. Uh, speaking as someone who is not especially interested is the wrong term, but someone who does not specialise on aerodynamics, I'm not aware of any work that's been done on landing in pterosaurs. Not aware of anything. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist, and, that, and I'm sure that the people who are specialists on pterosaur aerodynamics, Mike Habib, Jim Cunningham, others, uh, Palmer, Colin Palmer, I'm sure they have thought about it and maybe have done something about it. Now, of course, you work on pterosaurs, and you know more about pterosaur aerodynamics than I do. So over to you, John. There we yes, go. See? But I know a lot less about the literature. So, <laughs> the, because I prefer to talk than read, as people might have noticed. I don't um, read the literature. Yeah. <laughs> I don't John. need to. I just think it all up. <laughs> yeah. So the, um, there is a trackway um, that is reported to be a landing pterosaur. Oh, from Kraysak. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, it might be published on. In fact, I'm sure it is. Yep. Um, but I haven't read the paper. <clears throat> mm. But I have had a discussion about this with Jim Cunningham, and I, you know, generally you find that Jim and Mike Habib agree on these sorts of things, um, is that they, they landed on their hind legs. So they landed more like birds. They, they touch with their hind legs while they're sort of air braking with their wings, mm. and then they... They land with their hind legs, then they plop onto all fours. Exactly what we would predict. Yep. Um, and I think that's what the trackway shows. Oh, hold on. That's the prediction rather than what the trackway shows. Okay, sorry. I got that wrong around. Right. Yes. Well, I don't, I don't know whether Jim saw it before he thought up how they landed, but I, I should think he would have thought of landing before he saw the trackway. Um, so, yeah, that's how... Jim Cunningham thinks they landed. Anyway, he probably got a much more detailed description of what they do, but I can't remember it all. Um, and we've got f- we've got trackways of them doing something similar. There's a little hop after they do that. So they still yeah. got some momentum after that, yeah. but yeah. So it would be even for quite a large one travelling at a quite a decent speed. I would imagine it would be a a brief, a very brief event, and um, landing on. Water, I mean, um, um, of course, Mark. Uh, God, I mentioned Mark Wynn again. Mm. Mark, Wynn, <laughs> Mark Wynn has done an, did an illustration years ago of a, um, a landing, one of those Nathosaurid things. I don't know, Nathosaurus or Atenochasma or something. I think Nathosaurus. Um, breaking in a pool, coming to land in the water. And he showed it doing what, you know, say ducks do. Kind of just yeah, putting the feet in first, surfing in, and then obviously once momentum has stopped, folding the wings up. One criticism I remember of the illustration was that it implied more, uh, like 
it's based on like what ducks and swans do, but they're birds with extremely they're they're heavy for their wingspan. They've got very high wing what we call wing loading. So they come in at great speed and so when they do land it really is a yeah. you know. I don't know if that noise conveys what I'm trying to communicate. But uh, whereas, Very much so, yes. Yes, whereas a lot of these pterosaurs, not all pterosaurs, but um, these kinds of pterosaurs, like a tenochasmatid, uh, I said nathosaurid, what an idiot, tenochasmatid type, type pterosaurs, they've got much lower wing loading, much higher, longer aspect, um, higher aspect ratio wings and stuff. So they wouldn't be, it'd be more like a... like a gull coming into land yeah. or something. But then they sort of do, you know, something not that dissimilar. Don't they just alight on the water, actually? They're just like, do they surf in or do they just fold their wings in and just plop down? <laughs> yeah, well, I think the idea with pterosaurs is that especially big ones would virtually come to a stop in the air. Um, they wouldn't, like, hit the ground running. That would be crazy. They can't. They can't run on their hind legs while they're still, you know, at sort of a flight sort of speed. Yeah. So they, they practically stop. Yes, I'm thinking of what hit the ground. Storks and vultures and such do. They they sort of well, what's the right term? They're kind of like wings vertical. Yeah. Air breaking. Perpendicular to air break yeah, strong air breaking before. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that's the answer. Which was so um, disappointingly short, maybe, Robin. But, um yeah. Well So but what's interesting is I I don't I don't think and from what you're saying it doesn't sound like there's a tremendous amount of difference in terms of breaking and landing for bipedal birds, which then fold up their wings and don't use them in walking, versus quadrupedal pterosaurs, which break, then fold up their wings, and then put their wings down on the ground. There's no reason why that should be any different, really. It's not yeah. like as they come into land, they sort of touch the wings down on the ground, because, yeah, like you say, that just that just can't work without breaking your wings to pieces. Yeah. So, um, and once, yeah, once you're really quite big, you need to stop. You can't. You can't be... You know, hitting the ground with any force. Yeah, you got to do it very softly. So, yeah, that's. And as I say, yeah, there's there's a trackway which I might look up and put in the show notes, which seems to show this very thing. Right. Okay. There you go, Robin. <laughs> Probably a bit disappointingly short, but that is the answer. <clears throat> okay, Richard Hing. Hingo asks. What do you know about the history of domestic horses in sub-Saharan Africa? This is an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's not very paleo. No, it's a good question. What do you know about the history of domestic horses in sub-Saharan Africa? Africa? John? I know absolutely Ah. nothing. You know, I've been... You've seen me walking around and looking at stuff. (laughs) This is why. Horses of the world. Horses of the world. By (laughs) Daphne Mackin Goodall. Forward by His Grace, the Duke of... Beaufort, KG, KV, KCVO. And thanks to. You know to what that one- stands for? No. Neither do I. <laughs> Good story. <laughs> Good story, bro. Right. Um, so thanks to this book, I've, I, now, a lot, I now know an awful lot about the horses of sub Saharan Africa. And there's. Uh, okay, so first of all, there are horses, there are several horse breeds endemic to sub Saharan Africa. And the problem with a lot of breeds, in obs- obscure breeds in, in outside Europe and North America is so little is, is known about the history of obscure breeds because obviously people weren't good at keeping records on these things. Mm. The, because they are often maintained and bred by 
people of like a nomadic or pastoralist tradition or whatever, um, they clearly were shipping animals all over the place and not necessarily being concerned about keeping bloodlines pure or anything. They were thinking of these animals in practical terms. And also the work often hasn't been done in terms of genetics and such. So, and it's just hard to find good data on them. So if you think of a map of Europe and the Near East or the Middle East and North Africa in front of you, the general idea on horse domestication is there are like two centers of domestication where people are domesticating forest horses, tarpon-type horses, steppe horses, Shavolsky's horses. There's meant to be like a Western one creating the Celtic-type pony. So basically most of the horses of Northern Europe, the UK, uh, Scandinavia, they are horses of that kind. Then in the sort of the Near East, the Middle East, so involving the whole of the Arabian Peninsula, North Africa, Eastern Asia, there's this kind of Oriental-type horse, which ultimately led to the the Arab horse and the Persian Arab. These are horses that have been domesticated for... These are the oldest kinds of horses, domestic horses. They're like, you know, thousands of years old. From an Oriental-type horse domesticated in the kind of Arabian region, the Persian region, there is a descendant stock present throughout the whole of North Africa called the Barb, the Barb horse, which is obviously the horse associated with the people called the, um, the the Berber people which I think is also, Richard will know this, he'll tell us, but it's also got some connection with the word barbarian because barbarian doesn't necessarily mean like, you know, Germanic style thug. It sort of means people that aren't ancient Greeks or something, the, bar- the barbs. And the, the barb people, they had, these, um, they had these barb horses. And then at several times, it seems that people have taken barb style horses deep into South Africa, deep into, sorry, into sub-Saharan Africa. So there are several breeds occurring in, Libya, Egypt, and Morocco. So there's the Libyan barb, which is like a, an ancient you know, subpopulation of the barb. There's a horse in the Cameroon. Oh, I should have checked all the names because the, the country names are out of date in this book. Oh, Basuta land. Where's that? Basuta land. Basuta land. La 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 la. Just all for a second while we go to Google. Basuto land is it's somewhere like Lesotho or Somalia or South Africa or one of them countries. Uh, it was. How old a, is this book? Oh, I don't know. I think it's maybe from the fifties or something. Oh wow! Okay. No, sixty-three. Published in nineteen sixty-three. Basuto land. Is it now Lesotho? I think it's Lesotho. So that's a that's a that's like a landlocked country inside South Africa. Yeah, same thing as it was renamed the Kingdom of Lesotho. There we go. Okay, so there's a horse called the Basuto Land, the no, called the Basuto Pony, which is a cross between the Arab, the Persian, and the thoroughbred. Uh, basically, involves people taking horses, barb style horses, way down into the south. There's there's a Madagascan endemic pony, the Madagascan pony, but I don't think anything's known about it apart from the fact that it's suspected to be a derivative of the barb as well. There are two Nigerian horses. There's an Ethiopian horse, which also occurs in Eritrea, the Dongola horse, which is a cross between the barb and Oriental-style breeds brought in from uh, later on. And there was one other one that was particularly interesting, the Fulani horse in the... They're found on the borders of the Cameroon and Nigeria, and again, thought to be a, a mixed uh, breed involving hybridization between Oriental-style horses and Barb-style horses or ponies. 
Um, and that's basically it. And I have to say, none of these horses, I'm looking at photographs of all of them now, none of them look particularly spectacular. They all look like um, pony-sized, um, well, like like small uh, Arab-style horses, but with often shorter faces and, and pony-like proportions. Um, as in, like by that, I mean, you know, shorter legs and stockier bodies and they, um, they don't have the... Yeah. It's interesting because, well, this is just a impression, but you, the horses aren't don't seem to be common in sub sub Saharan Africa, right? Are I don't they know. Used if a lot. I mean, are they? Do people I think, ride them very much? Do they used for work? You know, if they got, I. It's probably just an impression, but they just don't seem to be around. Yeah. I think I think they were. Um, for example, there's the, the I have read stuff about the use of horses in like the um, uh, the, the war against the Zulus, that mm. that kind of thing. There were loads of horses used used in uh, in all those events. And in fact, I, I should have mentioned that one of the one of the horses in in South Africa, uh, the that Basuto pony, the Basuto pony, that's so it's a hybrid hybridization between. Arab horses and thoroughbred horses and stuff, but there's also loads of them taken down by the Dutch and Portuguese to the Cape. So another name for this 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 horse is the Cape horse. Mm-hmm. This this horse these horses gained a high reputation during the Boer War, so that implies they were um, yeah they were used a lot. Basutoland acquired so Lesotho acquired the Cape horse as a result of Zulu raids about 1822 as these horses were continually ridden at fast speeds over rocky ground up and down hills they become quite fearless and sure-footed and have amazing stamina the Basuto ponies used in South Africa for racing and polo there's whole breeds of horses that have been created for use in polo which is quite interesting um I don't know I get the impression that there's parts of Africa I mean I can't say I've been to lots of parts of Africa but um I get the impression that that there are yeah rural communities where they're used a lot as uh yep wagon pullers and or maybe they were used you know until relatively recent decades when they've since been replaced by all the suvs that africans have got and uh, (laughs) well yeah (laughs) um no but cars have replaced that sort of thing just about everywhere Uh, although you do see them you do see horses still being used in lots of parts of the world so I, i don't know i just i I'd have to think more carefully, but you know, thinking about places in the Middle East, yeah. I've been, and you just do see horses around. Whereas, see this, especially the, donkeys. The, donkeys are more common, aren't they? I saw a lot of ass in uh, in North Africa, and uh, oh, look at the pictures in this book. I mean, they they all kind of show people in like ceremonial dress, and you know, there's yeah. there's like there's people that are clearly dedicated horsemen. Mm. Um. That are just doing. I mean, look at this. This is a guy in. Well, this is in Egypt. So that's obviously some kind of like trained ceremony. Yeah, yeah, but that's horse. North Africa. North Africa um, is a different sort of place, of course. True. I, I never saw any. I've been to a few of the countries in North Africa and never saw any horses anywhere. But um, in in greener places, I mean, you know, South Africa and parts of uh, uh, East Africa. It's interesting. I, you just you just don't think of seeing horses, do you? Yeah, donkeys, as you say. Mm. Um, and yeah, okay. I don't think much is known about this, and it's kind of piqued my interest. So uh, I might I might do something about that because I like writing about obscure breeds of domestic animals. It's, it's really hard to get information on them. So there you go. That's what you know about sub-Saharan horses. Yeah, that's the question. Yeah, good. Okay, so there, there we go. go. Richard. So, 
Uh, right, let's do another one. Irene Delph asks, there's been a lot of interest about the evolution of feathers and flight in dinosaurs, but what about beaks? Do we know how the <coughs> coelurosaurs, known as birds, got their beaks, and how those compare with the structures also called beaks in other dinosaurs? Yes. So Yeah, yeah. There isn't there isn't much stuff done on this, done on the origins of beaks. Um now there's a kind of theoretical model in which people have proposed that this is a theoretical model done on the basis of living animals and not taking into account what we know about fossils now, where people have looked at like lizards and turtles and things, and they've proposed that the various large scales arranged round about the margins of the jaws, yeah. the the mental scale, which is the one, the big one along the midline of the lower jaw, the rostral scale, the big one on the midline of the upper jaw, and then the labial scales, obviously the big ones that line the, in quotes, lips, it's been proposed that it's basically enlarged keratinized versions of those that have evolved into the beaks of everything that's got every reptile that's got beaks and if you look at turtle beaks it kind of is certainly believable if you look at the relationship between the beaks where they where the where the what we call the beak actually stops and where the other head scales begin it really does look that that's exactly like that's exactly what happened that turtle beaks are big and large keratinized uh versions of um uh, these scales around the mouth. But birds, well, bird beaks are different because, of course, they sheath the entirety, so much of the lower jaw and so much of the the snout. Plus, what we now know about fossils, if you think of the, the theropods that are ancestral to theropods with beaks, and I suppose this goes for ornithischians as well, I don't know. Can we be sure that the beaks correspond to... I mean, do we? We don't know whether non-beaky theropods. Forget about ornithischians that I've been. Think of non-beaky theropods. Did they have these big scales in the first place? Yeah, we don't know. We just don't know. Um, I'm. I mean, I've suspected. My suspicion would be that they're novel structures that evolved as skin. I'm sure this has been suggested that that. The, the patches, of, patches of skin around the, the mouth became keratinized, and mm. that is what evolved into the different sections of the, the bill. We should also say that the, um, there's work on the embryology of birds and on the anatomy of like adult birds of several lineages, which shows that beaks almost certainly didn't evolve as like a single sheet-like structure covering the whole of the snout or the whole of the lower jaw. Instead... Beaks and both upper and lower jaws are formed of like four or five different components that evolved at different times. These bits have got different names, like the colmicorn at the tip of the upper jaw, the latricorns on either side, like on the maxillary regions, and and a couple of others. And in some birds, you've still got these still, they're still discrete, like zones or hinges. Are the crickets annoying, by the way? Yeah, yeah, I can hear them, definitely. But I might be able to cut them out in the... I quite uh, like the sound of the crickets. But, um, whatever. Um, yeah. So it's just one noisy little yeah. boy one there that won't shut they up. probably won't come out in the thing. But anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. So beaks in birds seem to be 
several different have several different structures in them. Several different sheets of keratin yeah. that, yeah, in some groups have like fused to form a big <coughs> continuous mass, but because, which probably, sorry, no, go ahead. But which probably, well, which probably originated from like toughened keratinized skin patches like those you see on the heads of many birds anyway like yeah. I, was, I was looking at penguins the other day and as well as having like distinct you know distinct beaky sections on the line in the jaws there's also like just big big plates of, of you can't really call them beak tissue but they're like gnarly toughened skin on the side of the face going right up to the eye that are probably there because they afford protection from debris and prey and yeah, stuff like that. And my guess is that you know dinosaurs that are and dinosaurs and other reptiles that are routinely grabbing prey and uh, are switching to like you know using the jaw edges rather than the teeth or something start to toughen up these areas for protection, and that's where you first get thing the things that we call beaks. Yes, um, it what would it seems clear that there's a different origin for ornithischians and in theropods uh, different uh, independent origins of beaks there um, but what would be interesting is just knowing what the skin was like on the tip of a you know I don't know some other theropod you know what's, what's the tip of a what's the skin like on the tip of the um, snout of a coelophysis for example would we think would, would it be somewhat you know, because there's there's a grade, isn't there? That's well, it has to be just for something mm. to evolve. It would be interesting to know if it was kind of really tough, smooth tissue like a proto beak, or whether it was a bunch of little scales or bigger scales. We just don't know, do we? We don't know whether they they had these large scales no. like lizards, or whether they just toughened up skin. Well, exactly, and we should say that people, of course, think if you talk about scales on the head of a reptile, people immediately your your first thing you're thinking of is lizards and snakes. But what's pre- and what's present in lizards and snakes and their relatives, tuatara's and such, um, what's present in those isn't necessarily a model for what happened in archosaurs, mm. because what's what's the case in crocs? Well, we spoke about this. Was it last time when we were talking about scales? Yeah. The fact that crocs have got things that look like scales lining the jaws, but they're not scales. It's a toughened skin, a tightly adherent skin, which is cracked and bent and fissured in certain ways to look like scales. Now, and it covers crocs, the entire head. No. covers the whole head. Yeah. Modern crocs are very specialised compared to lots of their fossil relatives. But the point is that we don't know from members of the archosaur lineage. There's, there's no... There's no reason from living ones to think that there's like a a lizard or snake style. Yeah, these distinct patterns of, of scalation. And turtles, yeah. of course, are a pain in the backside because we're not really sure where they go in the phylogeny, several different ideas. Yeah. If they do fall outside the clade that includes crocs, lizards and snakes, well then, the fact they got beaks... <laughs> <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> Forgot. I was going to say the fact, they've got beaks that are supposed to be homologous to the labial scales, the mental and rostral scales of yeah. lizards, snakes, and tataras. Uh, and if they're archosaurs or very close to archosaurs, that's interesting. If they're not, then that's less interesting for dinosaurs. Yeah. So ultimately, this is one of those evo devo things. In the end, it's whether can we determine that. 
those separate beaky units in birds and the skin and the, the tightly adherent fissured skin in crocs, can we determine that that is the different sections are homologous to labial scales and such? Uh, yeah, we just don't, we don't know. And we're talking about animals that we've just got nothing to go on. So mm. it's um, that's really tricky to answer, isn't it? We're not going to get it. We're not going to get an answer. Yeah, but I suppose the the two, yeah, the two uh, competing hypotheses are tough and skin, or large scales. Yeah, and what's your what's your preference? I think I'm going to go with tough and skin. I think I'm going to go with just basically a a more. croc-like model, I guess. You know, that mm. there's... Yeah, you end up with skin that just gets tougher and tougher and ends up being a beak. But, God, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if actually ornithischians and theropods did it differently, you know. That's possible oh, I, too, right? I th- Yeah, I think there's something in that. Because I think that... So we know that... Um, <clears throat> we do actually have beak tissue preserved in quite a few ornithischians, you know, hadrosaurs and mm. in, in particular. I'm trying to think of what the extent is. There's some reason for thinking that the beak tissue is actually quite less extensive than some people have thought. Uh, what am I thinking of? I might be thinking of work that's been done on overaptrosaurs, though. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Not sure if this musing makes any kind yeah. of good kind of Are podcasting. Are there any lizards hmm. with beaks? Not aware of any. No. Hmm. Nothing like it. Um, I mean, there's some that have got big mental and rostral scales. Yeah. But no, they just didn't. Just trying to think of animals that have beaks and what what sort of developmental pathway we think they could have taken or evolutionary pathway we think they could have taken. Uh, I think, yeah, I think it's that the model for turtles that I've already mentioned and then this this idea that, that birds... Uh, I'm sure there's classical uh, anatomical stuff like from the 19th century where people did try and homologize the different sections of the bird bill to the scales of lizards and snakes. But I don't think that's that's panned out or seems reasonable. It's more likely that they are they are novelties, anatomical novelties. I, I kind of think the idea of like uh, new toughened sections of skin being more consistent with what we do see in birds and to a degree in uh, in crocs and uh, and this would also be in keeping with the idea that that uh, some of these arguments that people are having about um how extensive beaks and soft tissue was on the face of ornithischians the models that have been proposed by um I can't remember the names, so I'm not going to mention them. But various people have suggested that, you know, the, the jaws of, like, ornithischians are sort of lined by different kinds of toughened skin. These are the people that are saying they probably don't have cheeks and lips and things. Mm. For that to work, you have to have parts of the, the skin that are, like, more flexible and not tremendously different from, like, the the rictal skin, the stuff that forms the web at the corner of the mouth. You've got, like, different gradations between that and between full beakiness and it seems to me that that can only work if you're thinking of a condition where you are talking about literal just just the uh 
changes in how keratinized the epidermis is doesn't seem to me that that can work if you're talking about scales forming the transition between flexible sub beak and hard beak because if it scales it's got to start at a certain hardness in order for it to be a scale to start with yeah, yeah. does that follow it's your a scale or it's not a exactly scale. exactly yes and and i think what we see in what we see in birds what we see that kind of thing in birds some birds yes yep yeah yeah you have You're different like, levels of hardness in what you call the beak in it yeah especially towards the rear of the mouth yeah so, yeah, I think that's the simplest. Well, that's probably the leading one for theropods, at least, possibly ornithischians. But the truth is, we just we can't really know, can we? No, and how could we know? I mean, you'd have to have like a whole sequence from different points in evolutionary time of uh, uh, immaculate soft tissue preservation, face <laughs> face preservations. <laughs> yeah, God, I'd really Which, love that from an early dinosaur, like just a face. That would be so how awesome good. would that be? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's not impossible. I mean, we have mentioned it before. The um, the 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 vulture preserved in Pompeian ash, mm. which, given that that kind of preservational regime has existed since the Mesozoic, it's not impossible you could get. Oh, that would be beautiful so preservation, good, wouldn't it? Yeah. It, it would. But it would. it'd have to be of an interesting animal. I don't want a hadrosaur. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't get me wrong. I love hadrosaurs, but we've got good ones of them. I want something a bit weirder, unusual more basal or something you know yeah um okay so i think that that's sort of well i think that's we yeah, we've, that, isn't yeah, it? yeah i think we've said what we can so yeah. i hope you're happy with that was that irene that was irene yeah. thank you irene yeah so thanks to the cash for questioners that was yeah that was good right. yes so no structure is there anything else you wanted to talk about chilisaurus chilisaurus have you seen the paper i sent it to you yesterday I have not read it. So this is a, a weird uh, tetanurin theropod that just seems to be like a crazy chimera of different things from different animals. It's kind of like, it looks similar to um, Ephigia, the bipedal cruritarsan or pseudosuchian, originally suggested to originally misidentify the coelophysis, and also to Lemusaurus, the herbivorous edentulous um, ceratosaur grade theropod. So this is like a fairly long-necked, uh, gracile, uh, South American dinosaur from, I don't have the paper in front of me, I think it's middle or upper Jurassic, from Chile, Chilisaurus. <sighs> God. Um, it's didactyl, it's only got two fingers, it's got really weird little hands. Uh, it's got like a, an opisthopubic pelvis, that means that the, the long bones of the pelvis, the pubis and the uh, ischia are kind of directed backwards. And... Um, it's just a weird hodgepodge of characters and fits within the base of Tetanuri. Not for, it's not a very big animal. I think it's like about human size. They've got several specimens. But the point is that if they'd found bit, they've, they've said, the authors, Fernando Novus and colleagues, that if they found bits, if they found like just the pelvis and then just the hand, they would have identified them as belonging to separate dinosaurs, mm. separate, to, from totally different lineages. But of course, they've actually got, I think, four specimens of this thing. Um, 
that are articulated and demonstrate that it is one animal. So it's uh, and it fits in with the work that uh, Andrew Cow and uh, Mike Lee and myself and Gareth Dyke published on uh, miniaturization in theropods because it's in keeping with the idea that animals and that part of the tetanurin tree are about that size, not particularly big. And the, re- the, the they've sold the paper as saying, uh, look, it shows multiple independent evolutions of this herbivorous bowel plan in theropods because mm. you know you've got weird herbivorous ceratosaur grade theropods you got weird early tetanurans chilisaurus you got weird herbivorous silurosaurs as in therizinosaurs and so on and and obviously within archosauria as a whole you've got uh chuvosaur effigia type things within the crocodile lineage so um this seems to have happened several times yeah you should check it out there's some good yeah, life yeah. reconstructions I have, I have online i looked at it i haven't, yeah. read, the, I haven't read the paper there's my life reconstruction. It's <laughs> <Yeah>, very nice. <laughs> I did it with feathers. With I covered feathers, it in yeah. feathers. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably reasonable. But yeah. um yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it, that this sort of this look of animal seems to have evolved several times. It's just really weird that it keeps happening. I would love to see what they do, whether they're all doing something that's a little bit specialised. <clears throat> it's not just generalised herbivory, it's something in particular that they're doing. Um, possibly, I don't know, that sort of pushes them into this um, into this bow plan, which seems, as I say, seems to have evolved several times mm. in surprising lineages. That's right. <clears throat> what I want to see now, though, because, okay, yeah, yeah, um, plant-eating <clears throat> theropods, yawn, yawn. What I want to see now is a, is a predatory ornithician. Well, it's funny you should say that. Uh-huh. Because people haven't found one yet. <laughs> no. <laughs> but that would be pretty cool. Something <laughs> keeps its beak, right, but becomes huge and raptorial sort of beak. That'd be excellent. Yeah, this is not beyond the realms of possibility that we have already got such creatures. Because, now, which group is it I'm thinking of? I'm going to have to go and check. But I, I, there are some, there's some like, uh, I think, ornithopods or something, where there are indications from the skull morphology. They've got like quite curved, slender beaks. Um, there's this possibility that these animals are not placid herbivores. Uh, I'm not saying they're like, you know, raptorial mega predators, mm. but um certainly you look at you look at like birds. I mean there's whole groups of birds where game birds and ducks and things where there's large numbers of species, but there's one or two, you know, lineages or species where um there are slender jawed, pointed billed things that are um, you know, often eating animal material. We tend to think of like ducks as mostly herbivorous, but there are duck species that routinely scavenge from carrion and eat insects and small animals. And, uh, you know, there are, there are parrots that, that eat animals on quite regular occasion. And I'm just saying that, I'm not saying they should be models for these, di- these mesodinosaurs. Yeah, yeah, but I, I don't mean that, you know, they do this sometimes or this is sort of a, they're eating little things. No, I wanted like a proper predator. This is clearly a predatory animal. Well, we shall see. Specialized predator is what I'm yeah, asking for. Yeah, not yeah. a not a opportunistic predator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or a sauropod so, that would even be a predatory sauropod. <laughs> yes. Okay. So chaos has reigned, and I don't think it's turned out too badly this particular episode. I wanted to talk about popular tat a little bit. Do you? Uh yeah, sure. So it's a whole load of. Uh, 
trailers come out for, <laughs> for movies recently, quite a lot of them. Um, and, of course, top of the list, Star Wars Episode 7, The Force Awakens, which uh, looks, pretty, looks pretty cool. Um, having mentioned Age of Ultron earlier, did you know that there's a weird kind of like Star Wars crossover Easter egg kind of homage thing in every single of the Phase 2 Marvel movies? It involves... What happens to Luke Skywalker in The Empire Strikes Back? And it's really obvious if you watched Age of Ultron. <laughs> so. Wait, Age of uh, Age of Ultron. Okay, yeah. Um, so, the trailers. Here's a problem with the trailers. Right? <laughs> Number one. <laughs> no, it's just a central problem, which will go for all of them. So, this is probably my entire input onto this discussion. But you can make good trailers out of terrible films. Yes. And I am just going to wait for the goddamn films. Well. I'm buying out of the hype machine because that's how modern movies get made, by hype, which is bad, which is why they're bad. Uh Because it's all this product, um, it's all the marketing they do beforehand, so they're narrowing down who it's for, and then they decide it's for 13-year-old boys who aren't interested in this, 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 and this, according to the marketeers, even though some 13-year-old boys might be, and therefore you just get this total crap fest of films that they seem to be making these days and they're getting much more sexist they're getting much more one-dimensional focusing on one particular sort of character doing one particular sort of thing i'm getting real sick of films and therefore i've decided i am not going to pay attention to trailers anymore i'm going to watch the film and decide whether i like it or not ah well i am (laughs) single-handedly propping up the, the trailer industry. <laughs> I, we've, we've, we've made this point before because, as I'm sure I've said, um, that there are trailers function as mini-movies. So what yeah. you see in the trailer might not even be in the film at all. They're making <laughs> the, the, like the, the Jurassic World trailer. Already that's shown stuff that in newer trailers is like completely different. For example, in the first trailer, we see the, the Mosasaur, the gigantic... Burian-esque Mosasaur from 1897 or whatever, we see it come out and grab a shark mm. and you actually see like a, uh, a point of view of the prey, so the mouth coming towards you. But in the latest trailer, you see the same scene, but it grabs a pterosaur instead of a shark. Or well, there's no way they're yeah. going to have both those scenes in the movie, which in- indicates that they probably in- invented the shark one for the purposes of the trailer. There's also two different versions. Two different versions... I don't have anything else to say about the Star Wars trailer other than other than I quite enjoyed it, and uh, and they've made a point of showing Hans uh, Harrison Ford in it. Jurassic World. Now they've released a scene from Jurassic World, and I'm kind of pleased you haven't seen it because it's basically two minutes of uh, what's the what's the right way of saying it. Well, sexual harassment, basically. (laughs) It's it's the the main glamorous womanly science person who's in charge of cooking up dinosaurs in the lab coming to Chris Pratt... Not a good idea. ...professional motorbike tinkler (laughs) person. And uh, (laughs) I've got to be real careful what I say because it's going to sound terrible. But what happens is she comes to him and says, we'd like you to... We like you to come back and look after the dinosaurs. And he's like, no, these animals, they need to be getting it on, baby. <laughs> like, just like you and me need to get it on. 
And then she says something else and he says, yeah, baby, like, you need to see my dinosaur, baby. This kind of stuff. And then she says something else and he says, yeah, you want to see my... We should be doing the T-Rex, right? And I'm paraphrasing it. Those aren't the exact words that he chooses. But uh, but basically, that's the whole scene. At the end of it, you're like, oh... (laughs) Oh, that's just great then. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> so the thing about Jurassic World is, that although you can make a good trailer out of a bad film, Jurassic World seems to just be making bad trailers out of a bad film. Yeah. I don't think, I think they can make terrible. a good thing out of this turkey. I think it's going to be really bad. Really bad. Uh, uh, and you haven't seen the newest trailer? No. Because there's a new one which shows more of the Indominus Rex, and they've released various pictures of it. And if you imagine, well, it just just looks awful. The dinosaur looks awful. In fact, all the dinosaurs and all the animals look awful. I mean, so this bit where the mosasaur now grabs a pteranodon, mm. um, all those pterosaurs—they're like, well, they look—they look—they're offensive to the eye. They're mostly because they're so slick and shiny. They're all like the slimy kind of things. Um, I don't know if they're meant to be, but that's what they look like. They don't look at all real. And, uh, uh, it's very odd. I mean, I don't know the budget of this one, but I presume it's relatively high, isn't it? It's like a big budget. Oh, it's going to be huge. This budget's going to be way beyond any of the others. It's just it's just people making monsters and not caring about making them. They're, they're under no pressure to make them good. look like I mean, animals. I know that they improve these things, um, CG, later on. You know, a lot of the stuff that comes out early is rush job, not not fully rendered and all this. But a lot of it doesn't even look good. It doesn't look as good as the other films, so... Even ignoring no, but, accuracy and everything, it doesn't look like great CG. Hmm. I guess. But, I don't know. Maybe that's just because they're not trying as hard. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, that scene, you know, Gallimimus things running in a field, I mean, they just they just look rubbish. Yeah. It just looks awful. So, they do. Um, and a lot of the stuff, the ones behind the um, the, the ball thing, they don't look that great either. I don't know. No, there's there's a galloping. They show a galloping stegosaur in the new trailer. Mm. Like it's literally galloping. It's like you know, actually, it's not. No, is it galloping or romping or lurching? Sort of. It's leaving the ground. Whatever it's doing, it's yeah. running like this. It's running. And, uh, yeah. Just okay. looks just terrible. So, don't got a good feeling for Jurassic World at all. Um, Terminator Genocide. The new, the new, there's a new trailer for that, which which is kind of some weird, like time loopy thing involving. There's a new spin on it, which is that John Connor turns out to be like made of nanobots or something. And there's a weird, there's a weird Terminator Game of Thrones crossover though, which is that Sarah Connor in this one I think goes back to 1984 to. Oh, no, maybe I've got that wrong. I don't know. There's some weird timey loop thing because because there's a Terminator. This meant to be the Terminator from the first film, which is sent back to like kill itself or something in 1984. So, 60 year old Arnold Schwarzenegger meets CG 1984 Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is a scene they've they've showed in the trailer. But Sarah Connor is played by Amelia Clark, who of course is Daenerys Targaryen, Dragon Lady from Game of Thrones, and in. The Sarah Connor Chronicles, which I'm the only person that watched that goddamn series, yeah. but <laughs> in that, Sarah Connor was played by Lena Headey, who plays um, Cersei uh, Lannister in uh, Game of Thrones. So, it's <laughs> so Sarah Connor has been played by both Cersei and Danny Targaryen, which is uh, kind of like 
funny if you're interested or care about that sort of thing. Not that I do, of course. Um, yeah. Do you, uh, do, they need to mm. leave Terminator alone. They really do. Enough already. <laughs> I mean, Terminator 1 Enough. and 2, great. Anything beyond that? Jeez. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, um, there's a Blade Runner uh, sequel in the works. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that'll be great. Let's make a prequel. <laughs> So, well, why not a trilogy of sequels and prequels? I mean, really. Um, I've really gotten into Silicon Valley lately. I think Silicon Valley is just brilliant. It's very funny. Ah, you know what I've watched recently, just finished watching, which uh, I thought was pretty good. Have you been watching Fortitude? That's the other thing I want to talk about. Okay, Fortitude, I'm glad you reminded me. Have you, yes. have you finished Fortitude? I have. Okay, so I was Willie, Willie Mammoth in a cave, parasitic wasps. Yes, I have watched it. Oh, you just gave it away. You're not meant to give it away. Yeah. Spoilers. Oops, sorry. Okay, there aren't Willie Mammoths in the cave and there are no parasitic wasps. Because that's a great one to talk zombies. about because it was actually, as, as these things go, it was solid science fiction. Interesting, like, unusual science fiction. Most things they wouldn't think of this as being the central thing and then just stuck with it the whole way through. I thought it was, it was, thought it was solid. I mean, not perfect. Yeah. But. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah. And and also characters that I didn't want to die did, and I was surprised when they did, or well died. Yes. I mean, they seem to be dead. Because, uh, but you remember? Yeah. Then you, you remember we spoke about Fortitude like several episodes back because I said I thought there was some foreshadowing in like episode one or two about something to do with undeadness. Yeah. Maybe you can't remember. The, yeah, no, I do. They kind of addressed it, didn't they? Yeah, 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 yeah. So. Um. Yes. Maybe we should actually talk about Fortitude at more length in a different episode, because I'm wondering whether we should wrap this one up now. I think we should. We yeah. should really. We're, yeah, we we're should. at time. Yep. We were talking about talking about uh, the uh, edge of tomorrow. Um, oh, maybe right. discussing yeah. that at some point, because I've now watched that quite a few times. Last night I watched X-Men Days of Future Past, which I thought was really quite good. Oh, I'm not quite clever. No, I'm not so talking about you have to have seen You have to have seen X-Men First Class to understand this is a crossover between two different storylines. It's right up your street. Yeah, Loved I, I freaking love that stuff, yeah. <laughs> John loves the Marvel movies. And yeah, I especially love crossover complicated things where you have to have seen this and that to get this and that. And oh, God, no. Oh, stop. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, let's wrap this thing up then. Alrighty. Who first? Okay. You first. Uh, how about you first? Because I need to find my Empire Strikes Back book of quotes. <laughs> okay, yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, if you want more of me, you can go to um, johnconway.co, which is my website. Um, I am the John Conway on Twitter, at the John Conway. Uh, same thing on Facebook um, if you like my work and you want me to do more you can patronise me on Patreon and I'm <laughs> patreon.com slash John Conway um, and there you get sort of some neat perks and stuff free books this sort of thing free cash for questions if you're a if you're a patron of me or Darren. So, you ready? Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think is... I said this before, but I'll say it again. Pa- Patreon is is quite good. They, they take a, a remarkably small cut, and 
it's sort of been a it's been a good thing for Darren and me. So yeah, don't feel yeah. Patreon is a good it's thing. It's true. Yes. Yeah, I, I'm I'm very happy with Patreon. Although something weird has happened this month, I haven't been I haven't received any money at all. I haven't received my money, and that seems to be because the money hasn't come up to the amount that it's supposed to, which means that some patrons haven't paid. I think it delays yeah, until all do. patrons have. Yeah, they try they try the card several times, but I think you can just withdraw any time you want. You can go in and manually withdraw. Yeah, that's what I thought, but I wanted to. I was going to wait so I get so. So it seems as if I have more money coming in because it makes me feel better. Um, okay, my name is Darren Nash. I blog at TechBodzoology, currently hosted at ScientificAmerican.com, and I tweet at. So we just lost the main. <clears throat> so we just we just lost the main rear deflector shield. One more direct hit on the back quarter, and we're done for. Turn around. <laughs> At Zoo. <laughs> I, I told you about my plans to do lackluster Star Wars, didn't I? I should totally do lackluster Star Wars or something. Anyway, so that's another, another tangent. Um, yes, so I sell Tetsu-themed merchandise at my Red Bubble shop. There is also a Tetrapod, Tetrapod Cats Red Bubble shop. So if you go to redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash tetzoo you'll find a series of beautifully crafted and highly intelligent and much sought after yet reasonably priced (laughs) t-shirts and other products the most recent of which is about crows and there's some hilarious stuff there about rodents and primates and phytosaurs and such um what else oh yeah books if you're interested in any of the stuff that we talk about you know please do get hold of a book we published called all yesterdays which is about science speculation and paleontology and the cryptozoologicon book one co-authored with our friend memo kozman and cryptozoologicon book two (laughs) (laughs) any second now any second it's publication is imminent um yeah uh John already mentioned Patreon. I'm on Patreon as well. Forward slash Tetsu. Uh, thank you. Oh, and right. Our, yes, our affiliates. We should mention uh, uh, our excellent friend, uh, Ethan Kosak, who runs the uh, uh, Tetsu comic at... Comic.tetsu.com. Yeah, and uh, Alberta Clore and John Termel and Rebecca Groom and Gareth Monger. They cooperate in producing the, is it called Tetsu Time? The it's Adventure Time style themed web comic <laughs> starring John and myself as characters uh, invented by Pendleton Ward. Hey, by the way, if you've never time seen Adventure Time. Yeah, time, thank you. So look, see, John, this is Adventure Time. Yeah, so, I've, I've seen like uh, Adventure Time in terms of, like I've seen the stills of it and stuff, but I've never watched an episode. Oh well, you should, yeah, use up some of that time you have by watching children's cartoons. Yeah, but uh, it's really good. Um, <clears throat> and until next time, I think. Yeah, okay. that about that's it. Okay, great. Roundabout wraps it up. Right. But okay, yeah. we should stop there. There'll be a little bit of anything done. Okay. And I thought at the front, we're called one at the very start thing. of the episode, we're going to put a little Star Wars bit at the front, now. right? Okay, yeah. when I go like this. You have to make a Wookiee noise like Chewbacca. I forget what you do. (laughs) Any anything, any interpretation of Wookiees that you have. Okay, right here we go. Three, two, one. Chewie, we're home.